Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship of Huntsville. We're glad to see you here. Hope that uh, this will be a day that regardless of the chaoticness of this world and things you're dealing with, because I know that we all deal with things. Some things are worse than others. Some days are worse than others. But just pray that this will be a time that we can come and worship and just honor God and be refreshed and be renewed. And uh, just enjoy this time. I hope that you can relax. I hope that you can worship and you can hear truth. And uh, we just hope that this is a place for you to do that. Um, there could be many other places for you to do that, but that this is one, that you can come and do this with other believers. If you are visiting with us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. There should be a card in the seat or underneath the seat in front of you, the connection card. Fill that out electronically or do it by pen or pencil, place it in the box in the back, which is also where we take offerings, is in the box in the back. You can also make other requests on that card or just ask questions. Uh, there'll be a time for you to come forward at the end if you want to join the fellowship or you just want to pray or anything, that will also be available to you. So let's get to uh, scripture readings. So CF is in chapter 2. See, has been going over the book of John, and we've been in chapter 1 for a little while, and now he's getting into chapter 2, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So we're going to read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, "'They have no wine.'" Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were, uh, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification for the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that had been made wine, he did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said, every man at the, at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and its truth, the story and what it tells us about who Jesus is, about what's working in his life and even among his mother and the people at the wedding and his disciples. Lord, I pray that that truth will be Shared with us, the, your spirit will move through CF as he shares and teaches. And Lord, that that truth will resonate in our lives, that we may respond and honor you and be lights in this world. And we say this in your name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to have you here. Good to have you as part of the service. Open your Bibles to the chapter that uh, David read, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Look at the deity of Christ, the witness of the miracle at Cana. And we're going to see, really learn, hopefully this morning, about how and why Jesus did miracles 
to a certain extent what the importance of it is, but more importantly, overall, what's it tell us about the person of Christ? That's what's really important, okay? So let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll begin. Father, we come this morning in prayer, thanking you, Lord, for this day and for this opportunity, praying and asking you, God, to give us divine wisdom, insight, understanding, comprehension, help us to receive your word and put it to use in our life to serve you and follow you in all we do. And we're grateful for everything, and we pray and ask this of you in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. What you, what you got here is in chapter 1, you have the prologue, which is verses 1 through 18. We looked at that. That's like an introduction to the Gospel of John. Then you have the witness of John at, at the at the baptism of Christ and the witness of John to the people. Then he selects his first disciples. But the key thing in that area is twice in that passage, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He refers to him like that. The disciples claim that he's Messiah, and they spend time with him also. Then you get to chapter 2, and what John is going to do, John is going to present a miracle. And the miracle is done to authenticate the message that has been spoken. The, the message that's spoken is, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The miracle will authenticate that. The miracle confirms that because anyone could say that. I'm the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But he does a miracle and manifests his glory. They like, that's him. That's him, clearly. The, the Gospel of John is written around eight signs. Eight signs is what it's written around. The first one, and by signs I mean miracles. The first one is right here in chapter 2. That's the first one. Turns water to wine. The next one's in chapter 4. He's going to heal a man that is dying. John chapter 5, he's going to deliver a man from paralysis. John chapter 6, he's going to make food to feed the multitudes. And in that same chapter, he's going to walk on water, which is a, which is a miracle in itself. And then in chapter 8, um, he's going to give, I mean, chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 9, He's going to give sight to a blind man. Chapter 11, he's going to raise Lazarus. Chapter 21, he's going to produce food again after his resurrection. And then there's an overall big sign, and that's going to be his own resurrection, but that's not one of the eight that John centers this story around. Now, clearly, Jesus did more signs. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 30. And we'll read something there, John 20 and 30. John 20 and 30 says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Then look at chapter 21, verse 25, very last verse of John, 21, 25. It says, and 
There are also many other things, or I'm sorry, there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So he did a lot of miracles. But all John's going to do is, John is going to zero in and focus upon eight of them, and or eight miracles, and it's for a specific purpose. And he tells us that in 2030, he says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So he has a specific purpose that he is doing, and, and that's what he wants to focus on, and that's what he's zeroing his attention on. And you see that a lot in the Gospels. You see a lot of miracles by the person of Christ. The miracles are done to authenticate messages that were spoken, and, and that pattern is all through there. I did a study one, one time, a long time ago, on that, and there's a, there's a correlation between miracles and message that is spoken. It's always done to authenticate. When Jesus came and did miracles, Jesus didn't have them put flyers out there, miracle signs and wonder service, 2 p.m. on Sunday. He didn't do that. His purpose was not to draw a crowd. His purpose was for the people that had heard him speak to see him do something that only God could do. And so they're forced to say, if he can do that, then what he said, it's got to be true. He can't, they can't contradict. Pharisees tried to contradict him on it, but he said, you can't contradict it. He said, you can't have good and evil come out of the same. It's just not how it works. And, and so he goes through this pattern. So what he's doing here is he's going to do a miracle and he's going to authenticate some key statements, okay? And those key statements, for example, verse 29, next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Verse 36, and looking at Jesus, he walked. As he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Then you look at like uh, Philip, for example, when he found Nathaniel in verse 45. He said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so you have all these witnesses and testimonies to who Jesus is. And so you're going to have the miracles to validate it, to authenticate it, to verify it. And that's what you have here in the, in the wedding at Cana. Now Cana, it says on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, the third day, if you're following this chronologically, that's, a, that's the third day from when Nathaniel was chosen as a disciple. So it's continuing on, actually about day six or seven of his earthly ministry. All this is happening in the first week of his ministry. And so the third day there is the third day from the incident with Nathaniel. It says there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And so they decide, let's go ahead and go to this wedding. Cana was a very small town, very similar to Nazareth. Uh, matter of fact, a lot of people denied that it exists, but it did exist. Archaeologists have found a city and such. But it was a very small town. 
And they're going up here to a wedding. A wedding in Israel was a big thing. It was a huge thing. A wedding normally lasted a week in that culture. A week. You think about that. I've, I've go to weddings every year, and uh, I've been to some long ones. They're like an hour and a half. <laughs> a week. A week. Let that sink in. A week. A week of wedding. Woo-wee. Man. But see, a lot of it was just festival. It was celebration. It was dancing and eating. It was like a feast, man. They put on big affair. It was a huge event, a huge event. And the way the Jewish weddings were, it'd go like this. They had a betrothal period. It's similar to our engagement, but they were still referred to as husband and wife. Okay, And a betrothal usually lasted about 12 months. After the betrothal, then the groom and his friends would go to the bride's house and they would get the bride and they would take her to the groom's house. When they got her to the groom's house, then they would begin the wedding. So they had like a little procession. They'd have like a little celebration. They'd be singing and shouting and all this stuff as they brought her to his house and then they would kick off the wedding and the wedding normally took a week is what it took. To run out of wine in that culture in an event like this would be very disastrous. I even read in some accounts where they said that if they ran out of wine at a wedding feast, they could be fined by the guests. Imagine that, man, being fined by the guests. It says, and when, verse 3, they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, speaking to Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, a lot of people read that statement by Jesus and think, what does that mean? Well, when he makes that statement, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? That is, a, that is an address of respect, okay? It's not disrespectful. It would be very similar to you saying yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am to somebody. It was a cultural thing. When he's on the cross, he's going to speak to his mother, and he's going to refer to his woman. A lot of it also has to do with the fact that Jesus has been raised inside that home with her for 30 years. He's been baptized at the River Jordan, and no longer is he Jesus, the son of the carpenter. He is now the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's in his role as Messiah. He has began his earthly ministry. And so he's no longer bound. Later on, they're going to say, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are at the door. And you know what he says? He says, my mothers and brothers are those who do the will of God. See, he's signifying his new role, his new spiritual relationship. So when he tells his mother this statement, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? What he's actually saying there is, is what do we have in common? I am the Messiah. What are you asking me stuff like this for? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. In other words, it's not time yet for this to be over. My time has not come yet. So he's signifying that he's no longer in the house. He's no longer a part of that family. He's in a different role. His mother doesn't have a problem with it. Mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. She just responds in that, in that like manner. 
And so what does he tell them? He says, now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 to 30 gallons apiece. So there's some big stone pots, and these pots can hold anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons. But note what it says in the text. It says they were for the manner of purification of the Jews. What does that mean? Well, the Jews had a very intricate religious system. And in their religious system, they had developed ways in which to bring purification to stuff. And one of the ways, one of the places where that was recorded is the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the interpretation of the Torah by the priests and by the scribes and the, and the scholars and whatever. And those, the Mishnah is huge, the stuff that they put in there. But uh, the last book of the Mishnah consists of 126 chapters and over 1,001 different things that had to be purified by water. That's a lot of ritual. That's a lot of ritual. That's a lot of ceremony. That's a, that's a lot to do right there. When you think 126 chapters and 1,000 plus separate items to be purified, what had happened in the, in the religion of the Jews of Jesus' day, they had taken the heart out of the religion and it made it just simply something that you did on the outside that wasn't a matter of the heart. They took, they took the, the whole meaning away from it. And, and it devolved into simple religious surface activity. A lot of what goes on in churches and denominations in America, I can speak for America, is nothing more than ritual or external activity. The people don't even know what they're doing. They don't even have a concept of what they're doing. And people have all kinds of religious external things that they do. Matter of fact, I had a lady this week that uh, I tried to get a hold of on her, uh, from work, I tried to get a hold of her on a cell phone, and a friend of hers came up and said, she, for Lent, she gave up her cell phone. And I said, really? I didn't even know she believed in Jesus, man. Because she's like anti-God, anti-all stuff, but she just got that external Lent is here, so I'm going to do my little religious thing. That kind of stuff. It's just an external thing. It has no real meaning behind it. And Jesus spoke about this with a disciple. Turn with me to Matthew 15. Let's take a look at Matthew 15. Oh, that sounds like a baby Tarzan out there or something. <laughs> Y'all hear that? That was that was that was a Tarzan yell, man. It was. Better look out, there's going to be some lions and elephants come through them doors. And calling for backups, man. All right, Matthew 15, 1. It says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, when he's talking about washing hands here, he is not talking about like you and I wash your hands before a meal. That's not what he's talking about. So your hands are clean. The washing of hands that he's talking about 
is according to the tradition of the elders. There was a, a prescribed manner and it was, it was real detailed. I've read it years and years ago. But like they would hold their hands out and they would pour water over their hands and they had to shake their hands so many times and elevate their hands and the water had to run down their arms and drip off their elbows and they had to keep their arms, in some cases, elevated until the water dried. And if you didn't do that, you weren't being purified in the right manner. It was just some ritualistic thing that was done. And so Jesus says, but he answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? See, this is, a, this is something you see reoccurs all the time through the Bible. Usually when someone is pointing something out on somebody else or critiquing something in another person's life, they have a gaping wound in their own life. That's normally how it is. They want to throw all the heat on someone else and yet deal with nothing in their own life. Okay, that's what Jesus said. That. He said, why do you worry about the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye? Take care of your own business first. Take care of it. That's what you got here. So Jesus fires back at him. He goes, why do you transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded saying, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me has been dedicated to the temple, is released from honoring his father or mother. You know what that's talking about right there? They, they would have their mother and father be sick, and they said, are you going to take care of your mother and father? They said, all my wealth has been dedicated to the temple. I can't help them. I can't help them right now. My money's committed. It was a holy, righteous way to get out of helping people. Use a good religious excuse. And that's what they did. So he says, hypocrites, verse 7. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Then he called the multitude and said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant which my heavenly Father is not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leading of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall in the ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. And Jesus said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. You see, Jesus contradicts their tradition. What Jesus is saying is, 
The condition of your heart is far more important than any external religious activity that you do. That's why in the Beatitudes, he said, if you come to the altar with an offering and you remember that you have unforgiveness towards your brother, go get right with your brother before you bring an offering. That's what he's talking about. Your internal life and relationship with God, much more important than any external thing that you do. The external ritual is to be a reflection of the internal reality, okay? You don't get favor with God by doing religious rituals. You get favor with God by believing on Jesus. That is the work of God right there. Any kind of religious activity flows from that. For example, you don't get right with God by feeding the poor. You don't get right with God by ministering to people on the street. You don't get right with God by doing any of that stuff. You do that stuff because you are right with God. You minister to people because you're right with God. You feed the poor because you're right with God. And you know that's what God commands. That's what God directs us to do is to help the poor, to help people in need, to minister to those people and stuff. But it's not done to gain. It's done because of what you already have. Big difference there. The, the religion of the day of Jesus I'm telling you, folks, it was all external, ritual, surface, nonsense. That's why Jesus, go back to John 2. That's why Jesus later on is going to tell his disciples, or he's going to condemn the Pharisees. He's going to tell them, he said, y'all guys are like whitewashed tombs. You take white and you white out the outside of the tomb, but on the inside of that tomb is a dead body. It's full of dead man's bones. He said, yeah, externally you look good, but on the inside you're rotten. You're rotten and you're corrupt and evil. And that's what he's telling them, okay? So back to our text. When he says, now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20, 30 gallons piece. That's what he's talking about there. But if you look at that, Six water pots that are either 20 or 30 gallons. So that means there's between 120 and 180 gallons of water there for purification. If that's converted to wine in modern day measurements, that would be equivalent to six to 900 bottles of wine. I don't know if you've been to a wedding and probably seen wine served, but I promise you, you've never seen a wedding with six to 900 bottles of wine. And this is at the end of the week. They've already, been, they've already been going at it for a while. This is at the end of the week. Uh, that's a significant amount of wine. But nevertheless, what do they do? Fill the water pots up. And when you fill the water pots up, he says, verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim and he said, draw out some now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when his guests have well drunk, 
than that which is inferior, but you've kept the good wine until now. He, that's some good wine. They, you could taste it after they've been drinking wine all week long. And I've had people tell me this is unfermented wine. It was fermented wine. You don't crush grapes in the Middle East in that heat and it not ferment. It doesn't take long at all. The, the process to create unfermented wine was not even developed by man until 1869. Tom, Thomas Bramwell Welch, came, the guy that owns Welch's Grape Juice was named after, he came up with a way during a temperance movement to make a wine for the Lord's Supper that did not contain alcohol. And it involved a pasturation process that he brought about. And so it was first time it was discovered was in 1869, right after the Civil War. They came up with a way to have an unfermented grape juice. So the wine they had here now, normally what they would do is they would dilute or extend their wine with water is what they would do because they drank it all the time. I mean, and quite honestly, if you're drinking wine all day long and drunkenness is a sin, you've got to have a way to do this without being drunk every day. So what they would do is they would cut their wine with water quite often. It's a very common practice for them to do. But nevertheless, when he takes it up there, this guy tasted it and he said, wow, this is some good stuff right here. Great. But do you see the miracle? There's nothing flashy. There's nothing fancy or out of the ordinary about this miracle. Jesus says, fill the water pots up. Then he, and as soon as he says that, he says, dip some water out of there and take it to the head of the feast. In that, in that instant, that water was turned into wine and it was turned into the best wine there. What is that showing about Jesus? It's showing this. He is creator. Look at your Bible. Look over at John chapter 1. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He's already been stated to be creator, and so what he does here is he demonstrates his ability to create. What does he create? Wine out of water. He, he creates wine out of water is what he does. And so Jesus is demonstrating who he is and what he's capable of doing. And those people that are there that see it, they recognize it because look at verse 11. It says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. Two things happened as a result of this miracle. Number one, the glory of Jesus was manifested. You know, that was, that was proclaimed back in chapter 1, verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And here at the wedding feast, his glory was manifested. The glory of Christ testifies that Jesus is God. That's what it's testifying. And so the first thing that happens is his glory is manifested. The second thing that happens is his disciples believed in him. Now, what is the difference between his disciples believing in him here in verse 11 and his disciples back in chapter 1 following him? Well, when they're following him, they're convinced 
that he meets the criteria to be Messiah is what it is. But when they see the miracle, they are convinced that he is God. And when they're convinced that he's God, they believe in him, put their faith in him, trust in him. And folks, that is true today, that for a person to, to be saved, they have to believe in Jesus Christ. All right? There is no other salvation. You got to believe in Jesus is what you got to do. So those two things happen. But there are some principles you can draw out of this text, I think. And uh, principle one is this. When Jesus goes to this feast and he and this wedding, he discovers that they're out of wine. And that's a somewhat would seem like to us as an insignificant thing. But in that culture and in that time, that was something very big. That was a very embarrassing thing. And you know what that tells me? Jesus demonstrates concern with every area of our life. You know, a lot of times people write off things, say, well, God doesn't care about that, or God doesn't. Understand this, God cares about everything about your life. And part of living for the Lord is recognizing God over every area of your life. People will say, well, God doesn't care about that. Let me tell you something. Paul wrote this. He said, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all for the glory of God. So see, very mundane things, eating and drinking, something you do every day. Insignificant. But he says, you do that for the glory of God. How do you eat for the glory of God? How do you drink for the glory of God? You eat and you drink with recognition that it comes from God. You have gratitude in your heart, appreciation towards God. It's, the, it's this idea. You begin to view and recognize every area of your life as intricately tied to your relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and James put it like this. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above with whom there is no turning or shadows. In other words, our life is to be centered on the person of Christ. But a lot of people tend to minimize that and say, well, God doesn't really care about that. He says that he knows when a, when a sparrow falls to the ground. He knows the hairs of your head are numbered. You know what that tells you? If, he's act, if he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, and what does Jesus say after Aren't you of more value than a sparrow? See, Jesus knows every intimate detail of your life. You need to devote your entire life to him because he does care about you. Bring God into the little areas of your life. Spend time with him. That's what fellowship with the Lord is about, is recognizing that he really does care about stuff we don't think he cares about. The other thing is Jesus is aware of your needs in life. These people run out of wine at this wedding. Jesus is aware of that. He's well aware of that. And what does he do? He comes to, he comes to do something about it. You're going to see all through the Gospel of John where he does that stuff. But one of the areas that really reminds me in the Gospels is when, and in Jonathan, the sixth chapter, is when the storms come and they're on the sea and they're panicking like he doesn't care about us. The storms come and Jesus says, peace be still, calms the storm, removes the problem. And the illustration of the picture is this. God is aware of the needs in your life. When trouble comes, rest in this fact. God knows about it. God knows about it. That should bring great comfort to your life. 
I mean, if he's concerned about these people running out of wine at a wedding, surely he's concerned about your life. And the third point that I found that I thought was in this is the contrast in this, in this miracle. Here you have the Jews with these ritualistic water pots that they fill with water for their ritualistic cleansing and stuff. And Jesus takes that and he turns it into wine, something that was used for celebration. Because the Bible says God gave man wine to make his heart happy, to celebrate, to be festive, to enjoy life. That's what he's given for. And the contrast is you got these water pots with plain old water. Jesus tells them, fill them up. And if they fill them up, boom, they're wine. They've turned into wine. And it's a picture of celebration and joy, the contrast between the two. Jesus comes to people all through the gospel that are burnt out because of religious folk. They're done with them, man. They've had all they can take. And Jesus comes, and what does he do? He lifts them up. He brings people back in the right side. He doesn't care what walk of life they come from. He offers hope and life to every person that he comes into contact with. That should tell you something. You want to be a positive influence in the world? Be like the Lord. Be, be a positive encourager, someone that's a peacemaker. You restore, lift up, celebrate, because that's the heart of Christianity, folks. The heart of the Christianity is to reach out to those that have no hope and to offer the hope that Christ has, because Christ brings hope to life. He brings celebration to life. He brings joy to life. And that's what this miracle is a picture of. Yes, it validates that he is God. Yes, his glory was put on display. And yes, the disciples believed in him. But it's also a hidden story behind it. And that is the difference of what he has to offer to what that religion had to offer in that day. And that is the joy of God is what the picture is. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in prayer and we thank you, Lord, for this day and for all your many blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the story that was before us today, the miracle at Cana and what Jesus did. And Father, help us live our life with a sense of expectation and hope to point others to him. Father, we thank you for the opportunity. I pray if there's one here today that's never trusted in you, that they might believe on you today and they might have life. I do pray. And I ask this of you, Lord, in Christ's name, amen.